0: Burn the Boats is proud to support VoteVets, the nation's largest and most impactful progressive veterans organization. To learn more or to join their mission, go to VoteVets.org.
1: It's important for there to be that connection between the residents and their local government. The most immediate place where that connection happens is at the voting booth. I also think... While a discourse on national issues is necessary, it's unavoidable and it's good, right? It's what sort of sets the tone for the country. I do think that to the extent local governments deliver for the community, the community has, has sort of faith in the system and participating in it.
0: I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. On Burn the Boats, I interview political leaders and other history makers about choices they confront when failure is not an option. My guest today is Lena Hidalgo, the county judge for Harris County, Texas, including the city of Houston. Harris County is the third most populous in the country, larger than some states. As the county's chief executive, Lena took early public health measures to stop the spread of COVID-19 and has made great strides to challenge voter suppression in Texas. Judge Hidalgo, thank you so much for coming on Burn the Boats.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Lena, our friendship goes back to the 2018 election. And I remember hearing you at the beginning of a lot of your speeches explaining to people just how great of a responsibility the Harris County judge has. Can you explain to us, and especially the non-Texans listening, what county judge actually means?
1: Yeah, thank you. It's it's a good question because it could be confusing. And my title is county judge, but I don't have a judicial position in the usual sense of the word Instead, here in Texas, the county judges are the county executives. And so I help control the budget for Harris County, which is home to Houston and 33 smaller cities. It is the third largest county in the country about the size of Colorado in population. So we're larger than 26 states. And the budget is, you know, libraries, public hospitals, the justice system, etc. I'm also statutorily the director of emergency management for Harris County. And so with the pandemic, the flood events we've suffered here in Harris County, of course, the winter freeze that folks heard about, that's been my responsibility as well.
0: So I said uh, Harris County is larger than some states. Uh, Hearing you describe it, it is literally larger than most states. And as I understand it, you've got a $5 billion budget at your disposal. Correct. I've heard you talk about a budget as a value setting mechanism. Can you talk about that? Can you talk about the budget, which just seems so like black and white and uh, actuarial as an expression of community values and how you have translated that actively in setting priorities?
1: Yes, so I do believe that budgets are about priorities and in being about priorities, they're also about values. Before I got here, the sense was that you know, the county government should only concern itself with roads and bridges. Of course, the result of that had been that we have a very, very limited public transportation system in Harris County. It's a big problem for business and folks who who don't have a car. And we have the largest mental health facility in the state of Texas, which is the Harris County Jail. All sorts of challenges. So what we've done is to try and design a budget that more closely aligns with the needs of the community. We've been able to really focus on flood control, to focus on early childhood education, to invest in smart crime reduction policies, criminal justice reform, and voting access has been a big priority, which paid off. So, and then of course, just thinking about the budget itself, budgeting as a, as a process in a more thoughtful way. In the past, and I think this is the case sometime with government, is the budget was so, simply whatever it was the year prior plus 2% for inflation there hadn't been an effort to truly evaluate the programs that we were funding and assess whether or not they were getting us to our goals in fact there weren't any goals so we've adopted goals for the county based on conversations with the community and we're you know this is this is sort of in progress because it's it's a massive massive bureaucracy but working so that Each program is truly getting us to a goal and we're tracking how it does that. And if it doesn't do that, well, we then we just don't spend the money on that.
0: You buried what I think you intended as a deep systemic critique in that answer in describing the largest mental health system in the state of Texas as the Harris County jail system. You weren't offering that up as an exemplar, right? That is a that's not a great thing.
1: Right. No, it's a problem. And it it's tied into many different issues, right, is the state of Texas has not expanded Medicaid. And so 20% of the people who live in the state are uninsured. Um, there's been enormous underinvestment in both health and mental health. But there's also the over of mental health issues. So yeah, I mean, the fact that, you know, I used to work in civil rights and free expression, I also used to work as a medical interpreter. And, and I remember at one point being at one of our public hospitals and the mother of a woman with very severe mental health issues was basically being encouraged by her doctor to press charges against her own daughter because that way she'd get mental health care at the jail. You know, so what we're doing to change that is completely shifting the way we deal with home homelessness, for example, so that you're not going from the streets to the jail to a temporary mental health facility back to the streets, but really long-term care, holding people's hands until they find permanent housing, shifting, you know, working on our juvenile justice side and with schools to identify mental health challenges in kids when they're very young before they get caught up with the criminal justice system. And then, of course, you know, more broadly, we have a a goal of really streamlining and using economies of scale, so to speak, across public hospitals, private hospitals, federally qualified health centers, which are sort of federally supported uh, clinics in low-income areas, and uh, you know schools, law enforcement, so that all of us are coordinating and providing consistent care to folks who need it on the mental health side. Now, that latter effort is one that started right before COVID hit, and so we haven't dug into it with as much uh, resolve and time as we wanted to, but once this crisis is over. I'm ready to take it back
0: up. I know a lot of your efforts have come into direct conflict with opposing not just efforts, but values at the state level. And I want to get into those, but you began to tease out a bit of your backstory with your background in civil rights and other things. Can you share with us what led you into public service?
1: Yeah, in many ways, Ken, I'm one of the women, right? So I never thought I'd run for office. And after Donald Trump was elected, you know, it seemed like things that were problems were growing worse. I was very concerned about the attacks on the press, having worked in the sphere of of public information and free expression. I was very concerned about the demonization of immigrants and sort of just othering people who who were not like him. And I was concerned about the policies that might arise from some of, of the rhetoric he was using. And so I felt, you know, I can continue working outside of the system to try and push for these issues to improve. Or Perhaps it's time for me to be part of the system, and maybe that's a faster way. I mean, my goal had been to work as an advocate, you know, to support the civil rights lawyers, to support the journalists. I was actually in graduate school studying law, you know, getting my law degree and studying a master's in public policy. And so I, I took a leave of absence to run. I found this position that was enormously powerful, but really had not been leveraged. People were sort of used to this governing body of the county being a good old boys club. These folks never used to lose. Usually if you lost a a county judge or a county commissioner, it was because they were indicted or they died. And I'm not exaggerating here. Or they decided to retire and appoint their replacement. So it was very, very rare for anybody in, in county leadership to lose. But I think that nationally there was sort of a you know, a wave of excitement, a lot of organizations wanting to support new perspectives. And so we were able to win.
0: You have this abiding faith in the system to be able to self-correct. I call that patriotism. And that appreciation of our system isn't just academic, it's visceral in your case. Can you tell us about coming to this country and your your impressions?
1: Yeah, so I was born in Colombia during the drug war, which was just a a dangerous time to be there. And my parents wanted to leave. They were offered a job in Peru, then in Mexico, then here. So I grew up in different places. But the constant across, you know, Colombia, Peru, and Mexico, when I was in each of those countries, was that governments there were going through tremendous struggles. So, you know, at the time in Colombia it was in many ways a failed state. You know, the government didn't control a lot of the territory. The guerrillas did, and it was it was just horrendously violent. In Peru, I was there just as the president was indicted for corruption and for bribery. And then in Mexico, there had just been a a seismic political shift that also had to do with sort of corrupt policies. So To me, government was something that didn't work by definition. Then I get to this country, I show up to a public school, which growing up, you know, I always went to private schools. So it was kind of, I didn't have high expectations. And I find that my public school was this incredible place with brilliant teachers, dedicated counselors, great, you know, sports facilities. And, you know, it was just, it was so impressive. And I know not all public schools are like that. But just the fact that it was possible really made me wonder why it was that government was working, what made it work. And so... You know, that's what I I ended up studying in school. I studied political science, but partly the question was, you know, what leads to government accountability? And a lot of that, the conclusion is, is sort of obvious, but it's true and it's important. And that is citizen involvement, participation, you know, sunshine, being the best disinfectant, the importance of voting, of the media, of public discourse, all of that really is at the heart of it. So that's been my focus.
0: For so many decades, so 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily. We spend a lot of time on this show, maybe too much, talking about national politics and big national issues and things theory-driven policy debates. But you talk about government accountability as requiring citizen involvement. And as a local executive, you are where the rubber meets the road. You are the example of politics meeting the needs of real people. Do you feel like there's a disconnect and maybe I'm part of the problem between how we often talk about politics at a national level and what politics is actually for?
1: I do think that it's important for there to be that connection between the residents and their local government. The most immediate place where that connection happens is at the voting booth. It's the, you know, the counties administer the elections. And so that's why it's really important for elections to be fair and and convenient. And so, you know, that's part of it. I also think while a discourse on national issues is necessary. It's unavoidable and it's good, right? It's what sort of sets the tone for the country. I do think that to the extent local governments deliver for the community, the community has has sort of faith in the system and participating in it. It's easy to understand why people may just decide to check out, to say, you know, I'm just not gonna vote, I just don't care, to be sort of cynical if they don't see government working for them. And I think where people feel it the most is with local government. Just this past year, we saw the racial justice protests and the conversations around policing, policing is local. The discussions around voting, you know, that's local. And of course, the pandemic, the disaster response in most places has begun locally. When there's a hurricane, when there is, you know, whatever natural disaster your area is vulnerable to, the the way it works is the locals are because they're the ones on the ground They're the ones leading the response. And so, you know, when local government can show that it does a good job on that, I think it helps build, you know, trust in the system. Now, if the federal government is encouraging distrust in the system, it tears away at that fabric of participation and confidence. And that really hurts everyone. So that's been part of my concern that the federal government has been doing that in many ways.
0: Can you give us a specific example? I'm pretty sure I I know what you're alluding to, but I want to have that conversation.
1: Right. You know, COVID is, is where it's come up the most because, you know, we had the federal government under the Trump administration contradicting the public health advice, saying that that it, it wasn't so serious, so sort of taking, you know, cutting local governments off at the knees who are trying to remind their citizens that, you know, hospitalizations are going up. We need you to be careful. The census is another place. Places like Harris County are, at this point, majority-minority, and uh, we've got a lot of immigrants, including undocumented immigrants, But they've been so scared to participate because of an effort by the Trump administration at the time to say, you know, threaten a citizenship question, to underfund the census. We, you know, we didn't get any funds from the state government, for example, here, very little support from the federal government compared to past years. So then people are now scared to participate in the census. I'm hard pressed to think that that doesn't have something to do with vaccine hesitancy. You know, there's leaders at the federal level also feeding, you know, narratives around vaccines. So all of that, the folks that that continue to claim that there was massive voter fraud, that the election was stolen, when both of those we know are to be false, they say, well, we need to restore trust in the system, but it's like a leaking bucket, right? They're the ones that are encouraging distrust. So that has very real implications on the ground because all of a sudden then people simply feel like government is not to be trusted. And the problem is we need them to be part of a thriving civic discourse and participation in order for government to work.
0: Well, it's that. It's the assault against our electoral processes and and the faith people have in their outcomes that is really the foundational threat. If you don't address that, nothing else can be remedied, right? And you have been at the forefront of trying to expand voter access and protect people's rights to vote. If I'm not mistaken, you just received an award alongside Arnold Schwarzenegger for your advocacy in this area. But you've had to do it in opposition to state leaders.
1: Yeah. So, first of all, yeah, we we both received an award, and it was a bipartisan award. And so, uh, Governor Schwarzenegger was a Republican, and I was a Democrat. And it was really funny. We both realized on the call we had a Zoom award ceremony, and we realized we're both immigrants. So it's because we've seen broken democracies, and we know how fragile democracy is, and we know it's not partisan to have participation. It, it shouldn't be, and we know how dangerous it is to try and make democracy itself a wedge issue. I've been watching with horror as the far right tries to turn democracy into a wedge issue. We can't let that happen because once you do that, you're threatening civic life, you, you it's dangerous.
0: Can we be more specific? Because we have taken to using the term far right as shorthand, but you almost have to include the governor of Texas in that. I mean, it has become a much bigger club than it used to be, hasn't it?
1: Right, I mean the folks that are that are sort of mainstream leaders that are a part of this are pandering to the extreme right. That's very clear. You know when they they know very well and we know they know that there was no voter fraud of any consequence or significance and yet they're they're pushing this narrative. So in Harris County in the 2020 election we invested in three times the number of early vote locations we had 24-hour voting we had drive-through voting we had pretty much no lines in a county that you know was huge and it was the largest participation we'd seen just from sheer numbers the the result of all of that was A record turnout, highest turnout in 30 years. And of course, 30 years ago, Harris County was a very, very different, much smaller place. And it was record turnout from both parties. In fact, the Democrats didn't do as well as we were hoping we would do. I didn't even know by the end of that election day, you know, I didn't know how a lot of the races were turning out, but I really was happy that people had participated. You know, we have folks from from both parties praising these innovations. Well, now there are bills at the state legislature that the governor has supported, and they basically would eliminate drive-through voting, 24-hour voting, they would allow partisan poll watchers, activists, to go inside the polling locations and video record voters and get as close as they need to get. And if a poll worker tries to intervene, they could be charged with a misdemeanor. You know, so it's it's like all these very serious, concerning things. The bills wouldn't let government even talk about mail ballot voting. It could be a crime to so much as explain how it works, let alone share a mail ballot voting application, um, because in Texas, you have to apply and have to have certain criteria to qualify. So it's really concerning, not just because it would suppress the vote, not just because it would be particularly suppressive to communities of color, which, of course, it simply continues the legacy of Jim Crow, but also because it suddenly turns voting itself, the democracy part of it, into a political football. And that is so dangerous. And because it's not just in Texas that this is happening, right? It's happening all throughout the the country. So the dominoes are falling.
0: What has the pushback been like in Texas? Have these proposed measures provoked the kind of response we hope they will in a democracy, which is, you know, seeing the the antibodies come out and call out the attempts to suppress votes and, and those things, or are they going to get their way? Let me provoke your answer with this tidbit from a local Houston paper describing your advocacy and the Republicans' response. The paper reported that Hidalgo worked with other Houston leaders to make voting easier by adding more early voting locations, drive-through voting, and 24-hour polling places, leading to the highest Harris County turnout since 1992. In response, Texas Republicans are working to pass a sweeping bill that would limit how and when Texans cast ballots. I mean, it seems pretty clear that the response to high turnout is what's provoking the limits in the Texas legislature.
1: Right, and I think that these Republicans in the state house that are pushing this, you know, their theory is it's going to help Republicans, but they're affecting both Republicans and Democrats. We have an election going on right now in Harris County and the area that is by far using drive-through voting the most is an area that is definitively Republican leaning. So it's just, it's really sad because ultimately it impacts both parties. But yeah, it's very much a response against our work. I mean, they've even carved out counties that are larger than a million residents, for example, where five million, so it's a very clear impact of course, all of this will have business repercussions, so what I'm hopeful about is the business community, to some extent, is coming out and speaking out against this. We're competitors for the FIFA World Cup, for example, here, here in Harris County, are in our own county stadium, so I'm concerned about what it'll do for that. I mean, it's just an ongoing battle, but we're going to keep pushing, and if we lose it, we'll fight in the courts.
0: Well, we'll certainly keep tracking it here. We end every episode of Burn the Boats, Lena, with the same question. What's the bravest decision you have ever been a part of?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, (laughs) Let me think. Look, I, I think some of these early COVID decisions, so many of us who had to make them, it was just so tough. You don't get any brownie points for deciding that people need to be out and about less, that restaurants and bars need to pull back. But there have been studies that are having done that early helped us not have the fate that so many massive metro areas faced. And so, you know, I think those were tough decisions and, and I stand by them. But, you know, there's so many decisions that folks don't get to hear about that I hope would make them proud.
0: Well, thank you so much, Judge. It's been great having you. Thanks again to Judge Lena Hidalgo for joining me. You can find her on Twitter at at Hidalgo TX and learn more about her office's work in Harris County at cjo.harriscountytext.gov. Next time on Burn the Boats, I'm talking to Ambassador Gina Abercrombie Winstanley, recently named the first ever Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer at the State Department. If you enjoyed today's episode of Burn the Boats, please rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps other listeners find the show. Thanks to our partner, VoteVets. Their mission is to give a voice to veterans on matters of national security, veterans care, and issues that affect the lives of those who have served. Vote Vets is backed by more than 700,000 veterans, family members, and their supporters. To learn more, go to votevets.org. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Isabel Robertson. Audio engineer is Sean Rule Hoffman. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons. Oh yeah, can't forget Cartoons. Check out our website at two twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.